Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On tonight's programme, the story of the last Irish missionary nun in Japan. We've jazz and tree planting in Galway. We'll hear from canon Linda Pilo. And I'll talk with historian Tom Holland, author of Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. But first, 75 Years in Japan tells the story of Sister Pascal Jenny O'Sullivan a young nun from County Cork who said goodbye to her family and left on the long journey to Japan to become a missionary there in 1935. She'd go on to spend the next three quarters of a century in that country, most of the time teaching in a prestigious girls' school in Tokyo. Journalist James Creedon has made a film of her life and James joins me now from Paris where he works with TV station France 24. James, you're welcome to the programme. How did you end up getting to talk with Sister Pascal in the first place? Well, Michael, she was a cousin, a distant cousin, uh, going up a couple of generations. My grandmother had kept in correspondence with her by letter writing all down through the years. Um, She had left Ireland for Japan in 1935. She came back in 2010. Um, I had been living in Paris at that stage for over a decade. And I was increasingly curious about this this woman who had come back from Japan after 75 years. And uh, I realised that it wasn't necessarily her uh, heart's desire to come back, but that that's what had happened. And so she was in a kind of a retirement community convent in Cork. I was coming back regularly, at least a couple of times a year to see family from Paris. And I, I saw her on one of those occasions. It was not long after her 100th birthday. And I think a group of some 10 people had come from Tokyo for that occasion. Um, and they had brought a letter from the Crown Princess of Japan, who had been a past pupil. And that was read out at this birthday party, which was very much a kind of a form Formal, um, affair that was honouring her and it was just quite an occasion and you got a sense of this woman who'd lived this extraordinary life and I thought somebody's got to record her memories uh, before it's too late and so I said look I'll do it I'll start recording her memories um, because I, I, I just she was the last Irish nun in Japan um, she was just an absolute live wire full of verve and joy and humour and all, all of that at 100 years of age having lived this extraordinary life where she had been on the other side of the planet for 75 years, dropped in there, not speaking the language and expected to stay and never come home. And then she did come home. So there was something I was really struck by the poetry of her of her life's journey and the fact that it was the end of an era. We'll talk a little bit about the film in a moment and the fact that the pair of you charm each other throughout the entire programme. It's lovely to watch. Mm -hmm. But we should really, to be fair to our listeners, set it up because there is a history of people uh, in Ireland heading off to, you know, the missions in many cases. And they might have gone to, you know, to Africa or elsewhere. But how did this one young girl from Cork find herself in Japan in the first place? It's true there were far fewer Irish in Japan and Japan had only opened up really to the West in the late 19th century. And when they were allowed in as this sort of tentative opening up to the West and the outside world, they were sort of invited, if you like, to set up schools. And so where missionaries would have gone to, say, parts of Africa and dealing a lot of the time with underprivileged uh, and poor people uh, there in Japan, they ended up kind of being plugged into these uh, circles where it was more um, people who wanted the skills of these missionaries in terms of language skills and whatnot. Uh, so the women ended up teaching uh, often in uh, sort of schools that were ended up quite well regarded. And so she she was in Yokohama, but then in Tokyo. And um, it's in particular after the war, when women's education became more of a priority in Japan, 
the, the, a lot of families sent their daughters to these schools and so she ended up teaching the likes of the Crown Princess. Not that she really, I think, um, I think she would have given the same devotion in a completely different opposite context in terms of privilege. It's just where she ended up being parachuted in. It, this particular order, the Infant Jesus Sisters, they were a French order. They'd set up a few schools in Ireland, but one in particular in Mill Street, in Drashan, uh, in Drashan Castle. It's a magnificent space and um, it's since shut down, but it was a well-regarded school. Um, she was um, a good student and she wanted to join up. I think she liked the the exoticism, the glamour. I, I think she did also uh, connect with the spirituality of being a nun very much. And I think she just felt excited by this life of adventure, um, probably somewhat naively. In, in, in some respects I don't know if she knew what was awaiting her or the homesickness that she was going to experience or certainly she wouldn't have anticipated being in four different camps during World War II um, and she was a kind of a pet she was the youngest of five um, very close relationship with her parents I think she was you know she there was, there was an element of her being the the the, um, the younger one and the pet and I think that partly contributed I feel to her being a little bit audacious and a little bit rebellious and actually in, she wanted to join up it was almost against her father's will he had pulled her out of the school on fear because it was also an expensive enterprise if you want your daughter to join up or if she wants to join up it's going to cost you an arm and a leg and it did at the time it was like £500 which was a lot of money was the in, dowry it was a dowry and then you never got to see your child again because they were swept off in this movement I mean it was pretty um I mu- it must have been devastating for a lot of uh, parents. James, in the film, you capture a, a moment where her father hands her over to the to the convent. Tell us more. Yeah, and um, she realises, I think, at that point, uh, or at least she remembers back to what that would have involved. I think there was all of this verve and energy and youthful sort of ambition to to get on with this life that she wanted to live. But it did have big consequences on her family life. She wasn't going to see her family again. This was back in a time when you were handing your daughter almost as property over to this order. And they basically, it was like chattel. They owned this person from that point forward and you couldn't visit and she couldn't leave. I mean, that's how things were pre-Vatican too. And so I think she loved her family. And I think this was a moment where she thought back to the sacrifice that was involved for the choice that she wanted to make. The night before my parents came to Duchenne, and I remember it was the first time I saw my father cry. Never. Because when I was taken upstairs and my ordinary clothes taken off and a little bonnet, a little bonnet, and a cape uh, as a postulant put on. And I remember Father saying to Mother Patrick, she was the mistress of novices, and he said, she's yours now. And he handed me over to her. That was that. You know, I was I was really struck by uh, the strength of her memories and how the emotional impact of them was so present and so real decades later, maybe eight, nine decades later and seven, eight decades later. Here she's talking about 
the the fact that she had to say goodbye to everybody because she also had a lot of classmates that she was very close to who she'd been in Drishan, you know, uh, either as a student or as a, a as a, a novice or trainee nun. And, and they all got off in Malaysia and she was on her own on the boat going to Japan with an austere French sister. So this was the beginning of having nothing and nobody of any familiarity around her. And that was what was lying ahead. It comes across very strongly in the way she tells her story that this was a, dis- a definite thing she wanted to do. And I'm curious about that. Was it, you know, for many people, this was an, an opportunity for women to actually experience freedom in their own right, even though it was in, in a closed system. The paradox of that was really something that struck me. And I'm not sure it's something I got to fully explore in, in the documentary, but certainly this was in a time of very limited freedom for women. This was actually an avenue that could could lead to a further education, adventure, uh, an outlet for, for skills. So I think a lot of, th- there must have been many examples of women who thrived in these roles and who didn't want the other institutional alternative, which was marriage and children. I, I mean, I'm sure there were aspects of, of that life that frustrated her. I think she says in the film that she would have liked children. Um, but uh, I think she loved teaching. She had a real vocation for teaching and she had a passion for people and she her concept, her approach to teaching was teaching the whole person and she maintained a relationship with scores hundreds of past pupils uh, for decades after they left her classrooms through letter writing, through birthday cards they also nurtured those relationships. So she was surrounded by this web of um, of love and appreciation at the end of her life which was just super impressive and whenever I went to visit her you know there were baskets overflowing with letters and cards uh, that she was getting every, every day. Every day there was a letter from somewhere um, and it was very much of her generation as well, but an exceptional example of somebody who had invested uh, really um, in human relationships as the principal kind of um, driving force in her life. So I think that also made me rethink of what faith is and uh, it, it made me reevaluate my relationship to something I had kind of in some ways put to one side and I thought, you know what, it's this is somebody who lived a message of love. Uh, she wasn't, uh, you know, lost in, 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 in ideas and dogmas and, and all of that. She was in the world, of the world. Uh, and she was also a prayerful person and she would pray for people. But her relationship to faith was was through the relationships in her life. I'm talking with journalist and filmmaker James Creedon. We're talking about the story of uh, Sister Pascal. The other thing, James, that that strikes me is that her resilience, and this was tested fairly early on in her time in Japan because she found herself there during World War II and she was interred. She was uh, for two years and she was released six months before the end of the war when when it was acknowledged that Irish sisters, I think there were 10 or 11 of them interned, uh, were not British and so didn't have to be treated as enemy nationals. And so from for the final six months of the war, she was put up into the mountains of Karizawa she would have been in pretty uncomfortable conditions, but in Japan, she was well treated in these in these prisons. I'm wondering at what point do you think was there a tipping between her Irishness or her becoming Japanese? That's why I felt with her story that it was to write her story would not capture uh, the woman um, effectively because so much of what was in interesting and intriguing and touching about her was intangible. It was in her body language. It was in the fact that she had become this, to me, this kind of blend between the two cultures in a way that it's, it would be difficult to reproduce nowadays when you're never so caught off from your home culture anymore, uh, with, with especially if it's the English-speaking world uh, through uh, globalisation and the internet and whatnot. But she was in this sort of hermetically sealed Japanese world I think, I guess, 
you know, a couple of decades after the war when she was really in this environment all the time in Denenshofu, Tokyo, um, a very Swiss suburb of Tokyo. She just was surrounded by Japanese culture, but she was the reference point to the English-speaking world. Uh, she was very much proud of her Irishness. She probably taught an English that was closer to the Queen's English because you would have had to articulate in such a way that the Japanese were, you know, able to really enunciate and whatnot. But I, I don't know, it, it was a, a slow blending, I think, over the years. And she had this high-pitched voice, which is something that Japanese women tend to do. They speak in a high voice, maybe an octave above what would be comfortable. It's seen as more um, demure, feminine. It's kind of an old-fashioned thing that women speak with a, a higher-pitched voice in Japan. She did that. I think much of her body language and gestures became quite Japanese. Yet, to the Japanese, she was profoundly Irish uh, in her warmth, in her in her ease of contact with people, in her wit and her charm, her love of poetry and song. All of that was something that uh, I think struck them as profoundly Irish. James, you mentioned earlier about the English that she would use, but there was a lovely piece in the film where she's teaching the children to, to say the word plum. Yes, that was a video that uh, had been filmed of her sometime in the 90s or noughties uh, in a classroom uh, where she was teaching uh, English using fruits, apples, oranges, plums, all this sort of stuff. But it was it was the theatre of her face, which unfortunately this radio interview won't be able to translate. But imagine a very theatrical face uh, along with uh, an equally theatrical sort of uh, um, exercise in teaching slash elocution uh, where each word was being pronounced and, and, and then the class would respond and she would respond back to them and, and it was just like a game. It was a game and she that's where you see the um, the, the teaching skill she had and the fact that she was utterly uh, suited to this job and this role. When did you see her last? So she passed away in 2013, uh, in December. I started filming in January of that year. So it was a really full 12 month kind of uh, cycle through um, the year. Uh, I saw her uh, in November and uh, she was just, she traveled back in her mind, in her heart when she was looking at that footage and she was in a sort of a dream world somewhere in between, I would say, living and and um, beyond that. And uh, she was really reconnecting with Japan. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but this genuine, I'm going to use it, is a labour of love. Um, and mm. it's something that you want to be seen. You've, you've arranged for it to be seen in a number of private viewings, and I presume people will get a chance to see it in the future. Yes, it's it's sort of gained a lot of interest now in cultural and diplomatic circles where Ireland and Japan kind of meet. So Irish Embassy in Tokyo, Japanese Embassy in Dublin, they've shown it a number of times. It's been shown at EPIC, the Irish Immigration Museum. Chester Beattie Library has shown it a number of times, the Irish Cultural Centre in Paris. And so now I'm basically investigating how to get a, a proper distribution. And so there's any information about that will be on the blog, which is 75, the numbers 75, 75 years in Japan.wordpress.com. The film of Sister Pascal O'Sullivan's story is 75 years in Japan. The filmmaker James Creedon, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. (laughs) 
the sounds there of the Galway Jazz Festival on at the moment. But what's the faith connection? Well, to find out more, I'm joined from the Galway studio by Canon Linda Pilo, who is a priest, chaplain to four hospitals and a rector in Galway and also a mum. I'm tempted to ask you, Linda, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> what's the connection to this year's Galway Jazz Festival? So Galway Jazz Festival, we had um, a lovely connection through the years uh, with the folk um, who organised the jazz festival and they put a proposal to us in the summertime um, that they uh, want to be carbon neutral. And so many people travel into Galway or fly into Galway for the jazz festival that they wanted to give back something to the environment. Um, And we have a biodiversity plan Uh, in St. Nicholas, in the Church of Ireland in general, there's a policy rolled out and we were uh, trying to plant more trees um, and to do more for the environment. So the Jazz Festival are coming alongside us with that and they're helping us replant our memorial garden. Uh, There will be bug hotels and just increasing the awareness of our carbon footprint and what we can do for the environment in general. Now, the location is fascinating for people who don't know. St. Nicholas's Church is a 700 anniversary due. Very exciting for us. Next year, uh, coinciding with the European City of Culture for Galway, uh, St. Nicholas marks its 700th anniversary. One of the special ideas we have are that we're going to plant 700 trees, marking our 700 years. Um, Now, obviously, we're not going to plant 700 trees around St. Nicholas uh, Collegiate Church. So we're hoping parishioners, friends, um, people in Galway uh, will get alongside us and take a tree and plant that tree in their garden, um, in their school, in their surroundings, in their community, uh, in the name of St. Nicholas. Will you get to any of the jazz events? Um, well, we are busy at the moment with our harvest preparations and Sunday preparations. Um, I just might. I take it one day at a time, if I'm brutally honest, because uh, the diary is already full. Um, but I'd love to. So hopefully I will get, get there. And a quick reminder then that if anybody wants to go to the tree planting that's happening on Sunday at half past twelve. Absolutely. Um, Half past 12 after the service. So there'll be no jazz music, unfortunately, during the service. Um, We'll stick to choral music during the service. But at 12.30, the memorial garden uh, will be planted at St. Nicholas. Canon Linda Pilo, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Absolutely my pleasure. Finally this evening... I'm joined from London by historian and writer Tom Holland. Tom is a prolific writer. His bestsellers include topics from classical and medieval history to the origins of Islam, including Rubicon, Persian fire and in the shadow of the sword. Tom, as we begin our chat, I wanted to refer our listeners to the wonderfully descriptive writing style you've got. For example, the way you describe Martin Luther's mourning on the day of the Reformation is very creative. Do you run the risk of clouding the history with that particular style? Well, the truth is that um, when I began my writing career, I wanted to be uh, a novelist. In fact, I wanted to be a great novelist. I I kind of basically wanted to be Proust or Joyce. So um, a a massively over-the-top ambition, which duly uh, crashed at the first fence. Um, But I think that it took me time to realise that actually fiction wasn't uh, what I was most interested in, that the wellsprings of my inspiration, which writers you know, have to draw on, were actually above all reflected my childhood passion, my childhood obsession 
with history. And when I began, I began writing, the first book, non-fiction book that I wrote was about the fall of the Roman Republic. So that was Caesar and Cleopatra and Cicero. And when I wrote it, I wanted to convey to readers certainly you know the history the, the absolutely the sense of, of of what i felt ha- had been going on absolutely truthful to the sources and the source material but i also wanted to convey something of the excitement the passion almost even the dread that i had felt as a child when i contemplated this remarkable age and that is something that i have always tried to do in every subsequent book And when you are talking about the subject of Christianity, we're going to have to lay down a couple of markers, I suppose, and definitions as we go through the topic, because the subtitle of of the book is The Making of the Western Mind. That Western mind, as I might perceive it, is a lot more secular than it may have been heretofore. So to that end, your argument in the text is what? Well, it's interesting. The the subtitle of the um, the edition on this side of the Atlantic uh, reflects, I think, a certain anxiety on the part of uh, my editor that um, mentioning anything to do with Christianity in the subtitle might put people off. I I, I think that the the subtitle that um, the book will have in America perhaps gives a better sense of what it's about. And 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 the American subtitle is. Um, how the Christian Revolution changed the world. Mm. So that essentially is the take. It's not a history of Christianity per se. It's a history of Christianity as a transformative, as a revolutionary force. And the impetus behind wanting to write it in that way is my conviction, which I am arguing for in the book, that actually Christianity is the most subversive, the most transformative cultural force that humanity has has ever devised or experienced. I'm curious about how that one specific part of religion, the religion of Jesus Christ, managed to cut its way through to even being present in modern day. In other words, was it a set of perfect circumstances that allowed it to flourish? Well, it is. I mean, it is a staggering thing. And I think we take it so for granted that... The question of how and why it was that an obscure criminal in an obscure corner of, of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago is worshipped now by by billions of people around the world in continents undreamed of by the Romans as a god is a really astonishing one. And I guess that the, the, the answer to that is partly contingent. It, it's partly the fact that Uh, The Roman world in the first century AD, the world of the Mediterranean, had become a huge melting pot because all these different cultures have have been brought together under Roman rule. And various different elements, obviously from from Jewish scripture, from Greek philosophy, Persian dualism, Roman universalism, they're all blurring and, and, and melding. And Christianity is, in a way, the richest, the most sophisticated cocktail that is brewed out of this this mix but i think that the reason for christianity's historical success goes further than that and in part it's because it appeals to elites in a way that previous cults hadn't so the reason that constantine for instance identifies himself with the christian god is because he as ruler of the world wants to consider himself the deputy of a single deity 
and the Christian deity passes that audition. You know, he's tried out a number of other gods, but ultimately it's it's the Christian deity who passes that audition. But I think much more profoundly than that is the fact that the core message, the the the, the foundational myth of Christianity, is that actually power can be defeated. The great symbol of Christianity, the cross, was to the Romans a symbol of their might. It was a symbol of the right of every governor to torture to death any provincial who opposed Roman rule. But Christianity turns that on its head. It proclaims that weakness can be strength, that humiliation can be glory, that death can be life. And it embeds uh, the stunning idea that a crucified slave is in some way coterminous with the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that therefore, if Christ was willing to take on the form of a crucified slave, then the lowest, the meanest, the humblest, the most wretched of human beings may in some way be closer to God. And that in turn generates in a society that was absolutely hierarchical, that took for granted that might was right, it embeds a kind of worm of doubt at its heart. And that worm of doubt has always been there and continues to be there. Because the message of Christ that the first shall be last and the last shall be first generates a kind of momentum, uh, a, a dynamic that is always bound to be convulsive. Because if the first are going to be last, then the last will become first. And then they will be the first and a new type of last will have to replace them. And so it goes on. And so we see emerging, particularly in Latin Christendom, we see an understanding of the divine purpose reflecting in change, in the idea that old orders have to be overturned. Tom, finally, if Christianity hadn't existed, what would fill the void? I mean, what would the Western world be like? How different would it be? I think it's almost impossible to answer that question because the impact of Christianity, not just on um, those who, who consider themselves Christian, but on, on the world generally, has, has been so profound that it's almost impossible to imagine a counterfactual in, in which it doesn't exist. I've been talking about the impact that, that Christianity has had on the emergence of what becomes Latin Christendom and then what we would now call the West. But it's transformative in other, on, on other civilizations as well. So, for instance, without Christianity, uh, Islam would not have emerged in the form that it does. Without Christianity, India today would not rank as a secular republic. And so you can see that the earthquake that began in first century AD, its impact is felt not just in the civilization that has been most profoundly shaped by it, but across the world and in places that, you know, that would not consider themselves Christian at all and in many cases are, are often radically hostile to it. Tom Holland, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thanks a lot. Tom Holland's book is called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind and it's published by Little Brown. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarnath Holland. Our producer is Sheila Callan. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.